We're a pioneer church based in Loughborough in the UK. Our mission is to make disciples to establish heaven on earth. James, what a man. This camel need letter writing, wisdom speaking brother of Jesus. He's taught us a lot over the last couple of months, hasn't he? From listening well to exploring what real wisdom looks like, from building treasure in heaven to persevering when things get tough. And the theme we've been following throughout this letter is that of putting faith into action, of taking what we believe and know and trust and living it out, letting our lives be different because of who we've surrendered them to. We've come to the last paragraph of this short but powerful book. And I have the pleasure of wrapping it up as we talk about prayers, the human variety, the type that all of us can engage in because we're all human. So I'm going to read the paragraph, chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, if you want to get your Bibles out. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. And then we're going to dive into the final part of this James journey. So verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. A few years ago, God took me on a journey. He pointed out that my enthusiasm for prayer was lackluster at best. It felt like something I had to do more than I wanted to do. And this stemmed from me just not quite getting what prayer was and what a privilege it is to have an audience with the king. Over the summer of that year, I felt a persistent nudging to investigate and to redefine my thoughts about prayer. And as I did so, I started to get excited about it. I began to enjoy it, to crave it, to feel lost without it. And if you get nothing else from this talk, hopefully I can pass some of that passion on, some of that belief that prayer is integral to living life to the full. And it's essential if we want to see heaven established on earth. Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this, a man prayed, and at first he thought that prayer was talking, but he became more and more quiet, and in the end he realized that prayer is listening. Put simply, prayer is communion with God, the creator and king of the universe, meeting with him, communicating with him, speaking, listening, dwelling. 
opening our hearts up to hear his voice and recognize his presence. In this passage, James outlines three dramatically different scenarios, trouble, happiness, and illness. And he urges that our response to each of these circumstances be prayer. Paul echoes this sentiment in his letter to the Ephesians, instructing them to pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Prayer, writes William Carey, secret, fervent, believing prayer lies at the root of all personal godliness. This believing prayer, this prayer of faith, is then both the root and the response to the highs, lows, and in the middles of the tapestry of our lives. The book of Hebrews describes faith as confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And I'd suggest that faith in action first looks like faith in prayer. Prayer is the place where we build confidence and establish assurance. Because prayer is where we speak out our hopes and we dare to dream about that which we cannot see. N.T. Wright writes that James is aware of living within God's story. And this is the setting where prayer, the most incomprehensible of activities, makes sense at the place where heaven and earth overlap. He says prayer straddles the overlap so that the person praying stands with one foot in the place of trouble, sickness, and sin, and with the other foot in the place of healing, forgiveness, and hope. James has an understanding of this overlap, and this is the worldview from which he writes this letter. Who here had a WWJD brand growing up? What would Jesus do? fair few of us. And who here had a whole set spanning half their arm? It was like WWJD, Frog, Push, I'm sure there were others. I remember taking all my bracelets off for the start of the school year and my arm literally looked like a drumstick lolly where I'd had them on all summer. One of my favorites was Push, pray until something happens. And I remember finding this to be a helpful reminder to be persistent in prayer, to keep going until I saw breakthrough. But there's a risk here of taking this too literally, of believing that if we don't see it, nothing happens. Of believing that sometimes we pray and nothing changes at all, which is easy to believe, isn't it? We get on our knees and we spill out our worries and our hopes and our dreams to God, caught up in emotion and passion and longing, and then we open our eyes and we look around and everything's the same. We're still where we were, Everything's still in the same place. The only thing that's changed is time has moved on. And maybe now we're closer to that thing we were dreading and praying for strength for. It's understandable to get up and think, cool, great, well, on with my day I go. And it's easy then to not bother next time, to think prayer is boring or maybe even ineffective. James Aladdin, leader of Prayer Storm, who some of you may have heard speaking at our church weekend away a few years ago, or more recently this summer at the 61 Festival, states that when prayer feels boring, it's because we're too focused on the physical realm. Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
There is a very real spiritual realm that we cannot see, where heaven and hell reside, where angels dwell, when there is constant movement and activity. And this isn't a scary concept, it's an exciting one. Because A, we know Jesus has the victory, and B, because this is where our prayers do business. When everything looks the same in our bedroom as we open our eyes, it's easy to be completely unaware of the storm we have just whipped up in the spiritual realm. Our words are taking ground. They're waging war on darkness. They're calling down bits of heaven to earth. They're establishing God's kingdom here. Paul instructs us in 2 Corinthians to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And when we fix our eyes on the unseen impact of our prayers, we're reminded of the weight and the power that they carry. James tells us in this passage that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And to be righteous is simply to put our faith in Jesus and allow him to change our hearts and lead our lives. So often when we hear incredible stories of heroes of the faith and the movements and charities and revivals that they were caught up in, when you pull the curtain back and reveal what's going on behind the scenes, you find a commonality. They all prayed without ceasing. Martin Luther said, I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. And if you've ever visited John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement's house in London, you can literally see the smooth marks on the floor where he knelt to pray for two hours each day. And he saw huge revival in his lifetime. And likewise, we see in the early church, described in the book of Acts, that the apostles devoted themselves continually to prayer. Prayer is mentioned 32 times in this book, and in Acts 4, it's clearly stated that it's only after prayer that the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Revival is birthed from prayer. If we want to see things change, we've got to start by asking God for it. And to do that, we need to cultivate a regular rhythm of prayer. So how do we do that? Well, honestly, it's as simple as this. Open your mouth and start praying and just don't stop. Make it a persistent and consistent habit, a discipline. The more you pray, the more you want to pray. It become a natural response to the events and thoughts of your day. Here are a few things I personally found helpful to create a discipline of prayer in my own life. Number one, make prayer a priority. Sometimes that means booking in prayer time in my diary to ensure that it actually happens and it doesn't get squeezed out. Number two, find a regular time slot. Habits are formed by regular rhythms and praying at the same time each day will help to reinforce this. It might help to set an alarm to prompt you to do this. Number three, pray out loud or journal your prayers. It's a lot harder to get distracted when you're midway through a sentence and it's not just an internal thought. Number four, be accountable. Check in with a friend, your discipler, or your small group regularly to check up on your prayer life. Let them know how things are going. Allow people to ask you questions. Number five, write things down. 
We'll only recognize God has been answering our prayers if we can remember what we prayed for in the first place. I've had times in my life where I've stumbled across an old prayer scribbled in the margins of my Bible or in a notebook, and I've realized it's been answered completely and wonderfully, and I didn't even notice. It's so good to track the stories of God's goodness and faithfulness. And if you don't know what to pray, open the book of Psalms and speak them out. There are songs of praise in there, as James mentions, but also laments, cries for help and guidance. You're pretty likely to find something in there that's relevant to your situation. Or pray the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus taught his disciples to do in Matthew 6. Or write and pray crafted prayers. Sometimes we don't have the words. Sometimes our feelings and our emotions take over, and it's so hard to express what we want to. Sometimes we just don't feel like praying at all. Crafting a short, clear prayer for a specific situation can help refine what you want to say to God and gives you focus and intentionality and something to repeat daily. When we pray consistently and with perseverance, the outcome isn't always on the outside, but the inside. Prayer transforms us from the inside out. To pray is to change, writes Richard Foster. Firstly, because the people we surround ourselves with rub off on us. I live with a Northern Irish housemate, and I've caught myself describing things as we, and occasionally using little Irish colloquialisms like your man, all the tag-ons on the end of sentences. So-and-so said this, so she did. And it's exactly the same with God. The more we talk with him, the more we become like him and conform to his character. His words become our words. We begin to think his thoughts after him. And the more time we spend in his presence, the better we recognize his voice. So when that Holy Spirit whisper cuts through the chaos of our day-to-day and prompts us to do or say something, our ears prick up, our hearts stir. We recognize and sense God on the move because we're attuned to his voice. And because we've created space for him to speak into our lives, to share his dreams and his thoughts and his plans with us. And to pray is to change, secondly, because the very act of prayer is transformational. When we pray for others, maybe particularly those we don't really like, it changes our hearts towards them. It's one of the most defiant and beautiful things we can do is to pray blessing over our enemies. It softens us, it grows forgiveness and grace. Regular rhythms of prayer develop character just by the nature of coming before God on our knees. Prayer is submissive and humble, choosing to put our preferences aside, offering ourselves as living sacrifices. It's raw and emotional as we lay down our pride and confess that we're far from perfect and we're sorry. It's bold and daring as we approach the throne of the King of Kings, risking the chance that what we ask for isn't in God's plan, but knowing that he wants to hear us and our prayers move his heart. Paul describes us as co-laborers with God in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9, working with him to determine the outcomes of the future. What we pray really does matter. If you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that so often the disciples prayed like their prayers made a difference. Their prayers were, get up and go, be healed. 
They prayed in faith, believing for change when they opened their mouths. They prayed and they acted like they served a God who raises the dead and heals the sick and turns water into wine. They too were human, unschooled, ordinary men. But they prayed as if they knew what the will and heart of God were and were partnering with him to bring it down to earth. Of course, this isn't the only type of prayer and there are times to ask if something is God's will. And we're asking for guidance when we're relinquishing our own attempts at taking control, when we don't know the answers. But there are also times when we can pray prayers of declaration, just as the disciples did, speaking with the authority given to us as followers of Jesus. We're not trying to tell God what to do. When we're in tune with him, we're declaring out what he's already revealed to us he wants to do. As we've spent so much time in prayer and scripture, moving in step with the Holy Spirit, and learning God's voice and his character. Charles Spurgeon describes it like this. The best praying man is the man who is most believingly familiar with the promises of God. After all, prayer is nothing but taking God's promises to him and saying to him, do as thou hast said. Prayer is the promise utilized. Returning to the passage in verse 17, it states, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. And there's such encouragement in this one little sentence. It almost feels like a little add-on to this passage. But what kindness to include this reminder that the mighty prayer warriors of the Bible, who called down fire and rain and healing and resurrection from heaven, were no different to us. They didn't possess any miraculous powers of their own. They just prayed in faith, putting what they believed about who God is into action with confident and expectant words. And so this is exactly what Elijah did. We read in 1 Kings 17 verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. That's a pretty bold statement to make, unless you actually fully trust and have faith that your prayers are being listened to by someone who has the power to halt the rain. Skip a few sentences through to verse 7, and we hear that the brook has dried up because there has been no rain in the land, exactly as Elijah had prayed. Throughout this chapter, Elijah does a few other bold and honestly quite strange things. It's worth a read, guys. He tells a woman that God has said he'll ensure her flour and oil don't run out for the duration of the drought so that she won't go hungry. He stretches himself out on that woman's dead son and prays that God will breathe life back into him. All very strange, unless, like Elijah, you're following the current of God, moving where he moves. For both of these things that he speaks out and prays for come to pass. And God's name is glorified in the process. This weird and wild chapter ends with a woman proclaiming to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So Elijah was a human being. And it's the very humanity of our prayers that make them so sweet to God. When his children cry out to him, Abba, Father, can I ask your advice about something? I had a tough day, can I tell you about it? I had a wonderful day, can I celebrate it with you? 
God, I'm worried about my friend. Can you send them some extra comfort and peace? I want to see breakthrough in my neighborhood. Can you make that happen? I'm tired and burnt out. Can I dump all this stuff on my shoulders or your feet and just rest in you? So human and so beautiful to a God who longs to hear the desires of our hearts. Richard Foster says in his introduction to his book titled Prayer, healthy prayer necessitates frequent experiences of the common, earthy, run-of-the-mill variety, like walks and talks and good, wholesome laughter, like work in the yard and chit-chat with the neighbors and washing windows. To be spiritually fit to scale the Himalayas of the spirit, we need regular exercise in the hills and valleys of ordinary life. Jesus invites us to be like little children in our faith. And there's a lot we can learn from them here. Children bring their simplest needs, desires, and thoughts to the attention of their parents without hesitation, embarrassment, or reluctance. It's a reaction for them. I've thought of something, or I need something, or I've got a comment to make about something I saw. Therefore, I'll talk to mum or dad about it. God doesn't ask us for only huge, life-changing prayers. He doesn't ask us for sanitized, watered-down prayers. He asks for us to reveal the depths of our heart to him, to pour out our thoughts and emotion. He's big enough and he's good enough to hold us. It doesn't matter the length or the eloquence of our prayers. It just matters that we pray, and we pray with sincerity. Let's just pause for a moment and do a quick survey. Who here has ever prayed something and it's been answered, whether how you expected or in a totally different way? Just look around for a moment. That's pretty incredible. And these are stories worth sharing to remind us of the power of prayer and to build our faith. Let's tell each other of God's faithfulness to us. Maybe over drinks and biscuits after the gathering, let's ask each other to share our stories of answered prayer. Okay. And who here has ever prayed something and it hasn't been answered? It wouldn't be fair to speak on prayer and not acknowledge that most, if not all of us, have felt the pain and disappointment of unanswered hopes and requests and pleadings. And the irony is the pain and the disappointment is felt the most when we grasp what we've already been speaking about, that prayer is powerful and important and effective. The greater our faith, the more we truly believe in the impact of prayer, the more we're at risk of feeling betrayal when we don't see answers to our prayers. So it's really important that we have a framework for how we deal with unanswered prayer, or it can lead to bitterness, diminish our faith, sometimes causing people to walk away from God. As Ness said last week, we need our image of God to shape our pain, not our pain to shape our image of God. We need a robust, biblically-based understanding of who God is in order to process unanswered prayer in a healthy, hopeful, and life-giving manner. First of all, we're in good company here. There are many examples of unanswered prayers throughout the Bible. The book of Hebrews tells us that Enoch, Abraham, and Noah, all men of great faith who were still living by faith when they died, did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. In 2 Corinthians, Paul prayed for the thorn in his flesh to be removed, and God's response was not to remove it. 
but to simply say, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus prayed for unity. He said, I pray also for those who will believe in me, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they be brought to complete unity. That's in John chapter 17. And we need only to glance around our world to see that this request has not yet been fulfilled. Jesus also prayed for the cup of suffering to be taken from him. But we know he ended up enduring torture and ridicule and eventually a long and painful death. So if all these faithful people, including the Son of God himself, experience silence or seeming refusal in response to their pleas, where can we go with this? Well, I suggest we start with the character of God. The Bible describes his nature, and we can see it in the life of Jesus through the Gospels. Scripture tells us that God is love. He invites us to call him Abba, Father. He's a kind father who gives good gifts and who listens when we call out to him. Despite his majesty and his wonder, he is mindful of you. He cares deeply for you and about you. There's a beautiful story in The Magician's Nephew, the first book of the Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis. The protagonist, a young boy called Diggory, his mother is dying, and he asks Aslan, the great lion, for help. Initially, he receives no response, so he plucks up his courage and he asks again, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he'd been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them, now, in despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Unanswered doesn't mean unheard, and it doesn't mean God is uncaring. We can trust him wholeheartedly, and this isn't a blind, ignorant faith and trust. It's trust based on his track record of being a God who cares deeply for his people and who keeps his promises, even if we're not the ones who see their fulfillment, like Abraham and Enoch and Noah, and even if it takes a lot longer than we'd hoped. There was an incredible story shared at the Fusion Conference a few years ago where a man messaged in to say his friend had just given his life to Jesus after 10 years of daily prayer for his salvation. A decade is a long time. On day one, his prayer may have seemed unanswered. On day 20, his prayer was unanswered. A year in, on day 365, his prayer was unanswered. Day 1,000 came and went, still unanswered. Day 2,000, day 3,000, day 3,650-ish. What a day of celebration and joy. What a day of answered prayer. God's timing is not always our own. And sometimes we don't see answers to our prayers precisely because God is so good. I'm sure many of us can attest to this in the hindsight of our own lives, where we can see that God had a bigger plan than what we were praying for in the moment. 
And going back to Hebrews chapter 11, the author continues to list faithful people throughout history who've been obedient to the voice of God, often without understanding why he was asking them to do what he asked them to do. But the author finishes by saying, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. God had planned something better. There's a risk that comes when we pray, your will be done. When we echo the sentiment of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, pouring out his own anguish to his Father, all things are possible for you, so please would you do this for me, yet not my will, but yours be done. There's a risk that what we might want might not be what God wants. But Isaiah tells us, in the context of describing God's extravagant love and mercy and blessing, that God's ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. We can trust that his will is always good. He might just have planned something better. If this is something you want to further explore, if you feel you've got more wrestling to be done here, I'd recommend the book God on Mute by Pete Gregg. It's honest and personal. It doesn't shy away from the doubt and questions that unanswered prayer can cause to spring up on us. And it also includes a handy checklist at the end, which I found really useful in making sense of my unanswered prayers. Sometimes the undesired outcome is because of me. My prayers are selfish. They're coming from the wrong motive. Or I don't really believe God is going to answer them. Or I'm living in sin that's getting in the way between me and God. Sometimes I need a bit of guidance from the Holy Spirit and from God's people to help me pray things in line with God's character and promises and his will for my life and the lives of others. Sometimes God is answering my prayers in a different way to how I was expecting and I'm struggling to see it. Sometimes I just need to have patience and wait and persevere. And then sometimes I have to give myself over to trusting him knowing he's a good father who makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. Knowing that I see in part where he sees in full. Knowing that he's a beautiful mystery that I'm giving my life in pursuit of solving. Choosing to bring my pain and disappointment to him and not let it consume and deform me. Trusting in the promise of Revelation 21 that there will be a day when there will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, when all things are made new. This is a big thing to process, and we're not expected to do it alone. Holding the tension of unanswered prayers with a celebration of the answered ones is all to be done in community. We come out from the secret place of one-on-one -on -one time with God into the embrace of our church family. James urges us to pray for each other, to confess our sins to each other and pray for each other so that we may be healed. Confession might feel like a clunky and overly religious word, but it's a powerful and freedom-bringing process. Tyler Staten, the National Director of 24-7 Prayer USA, describes confession as this. The terrifying choice to bring our naked selves before God and others. Terrifying, yes. Bold and courageous, Yes, but without confession, we get stuck. Hiding our sin denies us the chance to be fully known and fully loved 
and to step into the abundant life Jesus offers us. James is clear. If we want healing, we've got to reveal where we need the healing. The places where we've chosen our own way and ignore God's. The attempts we've made to meet our needs by our own resources. The times we turned our back on our Father's outstretched hand. Confession leads to maturity and breakthrough. It's the heart of discipleship, naming our weaknesses, bringing them into the light, and allowing others to guide us and pray for transformation that we would become more like Jesus. We build community when we admit we're not perfect, but we're committed to growth towards God. This is where the healing happens. As we come to the end of this passage, James gives a final plea to rescue any who have turned away from following God. Maybe they've quit because of the suffering they endured. Maybe they gave up because they didn't see answers to their prayers. But he implores us to stand beside those who have walked away and direct them back to paths of light and life. Paul also gives instructions for what to do in this scenario, saying in Galatians 6 verse 1, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Gentle restoration may look like creating space for honest and open confession, pointing that person back to Jesus and his forgiveness and healing. It may simply look like committed and persistent prayer. So we've come to the end of this letter and we're going to finish James where we began. With the image of him that speaks so much about his character and discipline. His knees calloused like those of a camel. And there's an invitation to join him on our knees in prayer. Powerful human prayer to the creator of the universe. Who asks us to draw near and call him Abba Father.